The first reading this morning comes from Exodus chapter 13, verse 17 to chapter 14, verse 9. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt, ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pir Hahiroth between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all of his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they, as they encamped by the sea near Pir opposite Baal Zephon. The second reading this morning comes from Exodus chapter 14, verse 10 to 31. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked, Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. 
I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been travelling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. In uh, March 2007, uh, Senator Barack Obama was in Selma and he was at the start of his presidential campaign preaching to, or speaking to, should I say, not preaching to, um, a gathering of African-American leaders. And um, they had assembled to commit, commemorate the voting in of um, the rights, the voting rights marches in, in 1965, uh, which took place when Obama was just three years old. And he faced an audience that actually stood side by side with Martin Luther King Jr., and he was also addressing the wider African-American public, and, you know, because he knew it was being televised and all that sort of thing. And these people, the, the community at that stage didn't really know who Obama was, and they were um, a bit sceptical of him, because here he's trying to connect with the civil rights movement, but he was like a Harvard graduate, his mother's white, he grew up in Hawaii, you know, he's not really part of the, the true, uh, you know, um, kind of civil rights community. And he, he confessed that he was a little nervous about following um, in the footsteps and in, in, the, in the tradition of so many of these great preachers that were in front of him. Um, 
But what, he, what had happened was he'd received this um, letter from the father of his own pastor, um, this new pastor that he'd, he'd, he'd joined this new church, and uh, Reverend Otis Moss Jr. And uh, the father of his pastor said this in the letter, his old, old African-American man. If there's some folks out there who are questioning whether or not you should run, just tell them to look at the story of Joshua because you're part of the Joshua generation. Now, now you might be thinking, what? what? Just to remember your biblical story, uh, it was Moses that God sent, who we just heard about, who freed the Hebrew people from slavery to send them to the promised land. But Moses himself, after... All, that, all those years wandering through the desert, didn't actually live long enough to get into the promised land. The next great leader that God raises up, Joshua, was to take them into that promised land. And so people were sort of looking at Obama as potentially the Joshua of the civil rights movement. So Obama thanked the Moses generation, he called them. Like Moses, he said they, had, they challenged Pharaoh because of what they'd endured, because of how they marched, they led a people out of bondage, he said. They took them across the Red Sea and wandered through a desert, always knowing that God was with them. They took the people 90% of the way to the promised land. They went to the mountaintop to see it. And just like Moses, they themselves didn't cross over. That task was left to the Joshua generation. There were still battles to be fought, rivers to be crossed. Joshua said Obama was scared. He wasn't sure if he was up to the challenge. But the Lord said to him, that is Joshua, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. Be strong and have courage, for I am with you wherever you go. Be strong and have courage, said Obama. It's a prayer for a journey. Be strong and have courage. Brothers and sisters, in the face of a mighty river, be strong and have courage and let us cross over to that promised land together. Obama's speaking here in the African-American tradition of Exodus politics. He evokes the Exodus story. In quite a few of the campaigns, actually, um, campaign speeches, and his outreach to the religious voters of America back in 2007, he called the Joshua Project the Joshua Generation Project. And once he was in the White House, he, he was the first of the presidents of America to have a Passover meal, an official Passover meal each year. And in his Passover messages, he interpreted the story of the book of Exodus as a liberationist text. He says, Obama, the enduring story of the Exodus teaches us that wherever we live, there is oppression to be fought and freedom to be won. And in telling this story from generation to generation, he said, we are reminded of our ongoing responsibility to fight against all forms of suffering and discrimination. It's not just amongst the African-American culture, though, that this Exodus story has been read this way, has been taught this way as a political text. Actually, it's been going on for about 1,500 years. The, uh, the first time we see this happen was by the historian Eusebius, when uh, Rome became a Christian nation, Eusebius interpreted this in the, in the light of the Exodus story. He saw Constantine, Emperor Constantine, there were three emperors at the time of when Constantine rose up and um, 
Constantine defeated the other two and became the supreme Roman Empire, emperor, and, then, and also at the same time became a Christian. And Eusebius, the historian back then, said, Constantine is our Moses, and the Christians who'd been persecuted, you know, thrown to the lions and the, and the gladiators, now we're free. We are like Moses' slaves that have been freed. Um, and God is still working amongst us. And this is so exciting. It is so powerful, isn't it, when an Obama, for example, evokes the Exodus story and talks about slaves being freed, the struggle for civil rights, talking as if God has descended on America and setting the, is setting the captives free. And it must have been exhilarating for the 4th century Christians to see themselves this way as freed slaves. Just after Eusebius, the historian back in the 4th century, was one of the most important Christian thinkers and leaders in history called Augustine. And he wrote a mammoth book called The City of God, which some people say is one of the most important books ever written. And in it, he actually warns, warns against reading the will of God in a secular context like this. He says, we should be a bit careful of interpreting political events through the Exodus story because, you know, we're putting divine significance onto people and events. And, you know, is Constantine really the new Moses? Is he to be trusted in the same way as God's great prophet? Is Constantine really leading the Christians to the promised land? Augustine makes a good point, and we should take his warning on board. Whenever we hear the Bible use this way to apply it, when it's applied to political contexts. But we should also ask ourselves, I think, why it is that when we hear ancient stories like this, the story of the Exodus, applied to the history of the world, applied to emancipation, why is it that when we hear that, that our hearts are stirred? And what I want you to consider is this. Perhaps... The story of freedom from slavery that is so powerful for the Hebrew people, it's their most important story, and it was important for 4th century Christians, and it's important for the civil rights movement. Perhaps this story stirs our hearts because it's pointing through layers of meaning, layers of spiritual truths to an ultimate greater truth about our story and about God's story. I want you to consider that our soul is stirred because the Exodus story goes to the heart or the core of the greatest truth in human history. And I think Jesus would agree with this. You know what, Jesus, what text, Bible text Jesus uses when he launches his own campaign? It says in Luke chapter 4, you know, Jesus stands up in the synagogue, he opens up the scroll... And he goes like this. He turns to Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, it says. And then he said to them, 
Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You think Obama is inspiring? Try Jesus on for size. Well, what I want us to do is look at this Moses story of the crossing of the Red Sea with the Israelites, very famous, and to find out what's going on for us deep in our soul. Many of us know uh, this story maybe from pop culture. We know it from the famous Cecil B. DeMille movie uh, where Charlton Heston parts the, the bathtub or whatever special effect they use. Very, very effective. You should watch it. Um, but what does it really mean? And to fully grasp its meaning, I want us to quickly do 500 years of biblical history, starting with Abraham. God makes a special agreement with Abraham, the covenant with Abraham, where he says, you're going to be the father, Abraham, this is 500 years before Moses, you're going to be the father of many nations, you're going to have heaps of children, and they're going to have lots of children, and they're going to have lots of children, and I'm going to bless them, they are going to be my people, and I will be your God. And this land that you live in right now called Canaan, um, where you live as foreigners, I'm going to make it your land, this is your special promised land. From that time onwards, Abraham's family grows. And you read it in the book of Genesis. Um, We read about his son, Isaac and Jacob, and then Joseph. And we we hear about all the stories that are associated with, with those people. When you get to Joseph, you find out that Joseph, the son of Jacob, is sold by his jealous brothers into slavery to a man called Potiphar, who's an Egyptian. And uh, to cut a long story short, Joseph ends up in the court of the Pharaoh and the second most important person in Egypt. So he's away from Canaan, this, 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 man, this, this young man, Joseph, and he's very influential. And a long time later, there was a terrible famine in that part of the world, which led to Joseph being reunited with his father, Jacob, and the family who came from Canaan to move to Egypt because they had no resources, whereas Egypt had some food in storage. And his father Jacob came with 70 people of his family and livestock, and Pharaoh showed great favour on them because he loved Joseph so much, he had so much respect for Joseph. So the Hebrew people, um, the the people of Jacob, Jacob's also got the name Israel, which is where we get the name Israelites from, um, they, they, they settle in Egypt and grow in number and in prosperity. God has rescued his people from famine, but they are no longer living in the promised land. So what we've got to ask ourselves is, surely God must have a plan for them to go home, back to Canaan. God's promise to Abraham is that his family would be huge. That is being fulfilled. We can see that in the story of Genesis. Joseph lives to the age of 110, and before he died, he made the children of Israel swear that when they left the land of Egypt, that they would take his bones with them. And on his death, um, his body was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. And that's where the book of Genesis finishes, around there. So you finish the first book of the Bible, Genesis, at that point. Then you open up the book of Exodus, and about 400 years has gone by. And in between uh, that 400 years, Exodus chapter 1 verse 8 tells us 
Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. And so the Pharaoh's feeling threatened because there's this other culture amongst them. They're, they're large in number, they're influential, so he feels threatened, so he puts him into slavery. He, and he tries to weaken them as a people. He commanded that every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. And it's into this context that Moses is born. Moses' mother, Jochebed, did not want him to be thrown into the Nile. So she secretly hid him in a papyrus basket and put him amongst the reeds in the Nile, hoping that somebody would find him. And Pharaoh's daughter came down to the Nile to bathe and saw the baby in the basket. She showed compassion for him, took him into the palace and eventually adopted her as her own. So Moses grows up with the Egyptian royal family. Then as an adult, and we're moving fast through time here, but then as an adult, Moses is, you know, got the influence in the court and he sees um, a slave master abusing a Hebrew slave and Moses intervenes and kills the slave master. And so he gets into trouble and he lays low and he leaves town. He fled across the Red Sea to Midian where he encountered on the mountain the angel of the Lord speaking to him from within a burning bush. God sent Moses, the story that we find out from the burning bush is that God is sending Moses back um, to Egypt to, to demand the release of the slaves, the Hebrew slaves. This is God's plan. So as we're following this long story through, we go, okay, so God's agreement with Abraham is still on the table here. God hasn't abandoned his, his promise. He's sending Moses to free these people from slavery and they can return back to the promised land. Moses complained to God, how am I going to do this? I can't even speak properly. So God, apparently his speech was poor, so God allowed his brother Aaron to be his mouthpiece, his spokesperson. Moses confronted Pharaoh, we read about that, and said, God, said to you, God says to me to tell you, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh does not agree. And then God sends a series of ten plagues. Now, there's a whole lot of plagues. You can read about that. And the tenth plague is the most gruesome of the plagues. And it's the plague of the death of the firstborn. And before this final plague, God commanded Moses to tell all the Israelites to mark lamb's blood above their doors on every door. So the idea was that the angel of the Lord would come through and the firstborn son would be killed. It's gruesome. It's terrible. It's to show Pharaoh that God means business. And God says this, when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. That was the instructions Moses gave them. And that event, which is called the Passover, is one of the most important events in Jewish history. And it lies at the heart of both Jewish and Christian theology. It's one way the New Testament explains how Jesus' blood Shed on the cross saves people from eternal death. After this, Pharaoh, who's furious after this event, he's saddened and he's afraid that he would be killed next. 
he ordered the Israelites to leave. He says, just get out of town. I don't want to see you anymore. Taking whatever they wanted. And he asked Moses to bless him in the name of the Lord. It seems like maybe Pharaoh's having a change of heart. Is he? The Israelites did not hesitate. They pecked the pegs and left. Believing that soon Pharaoh would once again change his mind. They were, they were in a hurry. They thought we better just quickly go before he chases after us. At the end of the night, Moses led them out of Egypt with their arms upraised, it says. But as the Israelites left Egypt, the Pharaoh did change his mind. He's like, I don't want them to go. He started to regret his decision. And this is what brings us to our passage at this point. And what we see is God having a plan. God has a plan. He's a strategist. He's playing a game of military chess with Pharaoh. God's going to lead the Israelites in a strange pathway to escape the Egyptians. And he's going to do it in such a way to make them look weak. They're going to look trapped. The more the situation looks terrible for the Israelites, the more God will be glorified when they are saved. The Israelites are not going to be able to be saved through military might. They will need a miracle of God. God could have led the Israelites through the land of the Philistines, our passage tells us. But that, that was a close pathway for them. But God said they might change their minds and return to Egypt. This is in chapter 13, verse 17. It's not always the case that God gives his people the safer option. Sometimes he gives them the more difficult option. This Philistine's country ran along the coast and it made sense for them to go that way. It was well guarded, travelled by many people and therefore it was the route along which the Egyptian resistance and strong opposition was most likely to go. But God took them this alternative route because he knew that they might change their minds and seek to return to Egypt. See, the Israelites show themselves to be weak-minded. You would think after all that's happened, they would trust God. But they're sort of wobbly in their trust of God. Their hearts are confused. And this is going to be a big issue in the whole book of Exodus. The Israelites and their divided heart. God guides them carefully like a shepherd leading his flock through a dangerous path to safety. Look at verse 21. By day, this is chapter 13, verse 21. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. And it says that God leads them to the Red Sea. And some of you, if you've got Bibles, will have have a footnote that says... uh, the Sea of Reeds, and that's because there's confusion over the translation. The Greek version of the Old Testament, the ancient Greek version of the Old Testament, translates it to the Red Sea, but the Hebrew version says the Sea of Reeds, and in the end, we don't really know exactly the bit of water it was, but the point is, it's a dangerous stretch of water, so dangerous that the Egyptian army will eventually drown in it. Now, part of God's plan to save the Hebrew people is to to harden Uh, Pharaoh's heart he says to Moses camp by the sea and then Pharaoh will think you have no idea what you are doing he's going to say to himself the Israelites are totally confused and he will think that you are trapped and in doing this says God I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart 
He will go after them, and as a result, I will bring glory to myself, says in verse 4. Pharaoh is going to realize he'd made a huge leadership error. He's going to realize that the Hebrew God is the true God and more powerful than his gods, and he's going to get so angry. But God will be glorified. Now, when we read this, it is possible you might be thinking, what is this God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Why would God do that to a person? You might even wonder, is he still doing that today? Might he harden my heart? If you read through the story of Exodus from the start, you'll actually see this phrase um, referring to the state of Pharaoh's heart repeated about over 10 times. And it actually is a little bit um, ambiguous about how this process is occurring. Sometimes it's said in the passive, it says, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Who by? Sometimes it says it actively, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Or sometimes it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. The point is, it's clear that Pharaoh is an evil man with evil intention. And his heart becomes hardened because of his own sin. But see, what happens is, if you follow the plagues through, after about the fifth plague, it's like he's gone so far... He's gone so bad into his sin, his heart turns to stone. And it's like God has handed him over to his hard heart. And then God takes this sinful man, this evil man, and uses his hard heart for his own good purposes. It's not like God's creating evil here, but he's actually using these terrible things for his own good purposes. God is not causing the evil. Rather, we're being warned as we follow this Pharaoh through in his story to not be like him. Because if you let sin and evil continue in your life, your heart can start to get seriously messed up. God will always offer gracious chances to turn back. And we see that with Pharaoh. There are many chances for him to come back. Moses goes back to him time and time, over 10 times. But sometimes a person can cement their heart so hard in a destructive path and reach a point of no return. And God can and sometimes just lets people go into their own evil, um, hands them over to their own evil that they desire. But what I don't want you to do is to worry about yourself. Well, I do in a sense, but if you are worrying about yourself, then this is good. Because people who worry about their own hearts and whether or not it's going hard, well, you're in a good place. Because people whose hearts are really hardened in the Pharaoh sense don't worry about it at all. You're obviously not Pharaoh if you're worrying about the state of your heart. Only people whose heart is soft and want to live in God's way are concerned for the state of their heart. So verse 8 says, The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, as was the plan, and Pharaoh in his anger gathered his forces and pursued the people of Israel. Verse 7 says, He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over all of them. This was a terrible and deadly military machine. And contrast this with the Israelites in verse 10 to 14. They were scared, they were crying out to God, they were complaining to Moses. 
Verse 11, they're complaining and they're saying, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. To which Moses comforted them with this. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. There is no way forward. God's promise to Abraham, made about 500 years earlier, was about to be ruined. All the Israelite people were about to be killed. God's saving act to free them from slavery seems to them to be a cruel joke. But Moses says, the Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. We all have times in our life when we face huge obstacles, huge problems that confront us and we think there's no way forward. So fierce, so significant. And sometimes it's just that they seem big at the time. Maybe you are stressing about your study, your housing, your health, your relationships. If you were to draw out all of your life's problems on a, on a, on a, on a scale of uh, like not that serious to extremely serious, you'd probably see a spectrum, wouldn't you? Sometimes we have much bigger problems than at other times in our lives. Should you break up with your boyfriend? Seems like a huge problem now, not so much later. In the scheme of life, there are far more bigger issues you can deal with. Uh, should you worry about where you're going to live? Well, it could be serious. If you've lost your job and you can't afford to pay the rent, that is a serious problem, isn't it? Many people are worrying about their health. Many people are worrying about their family. And you feel like you're being trapped in front of the sea of the reeds, the Red Sea, with no escape. And these life problems can feel like the end for us. But to put it in perspective, the Bible presents an even bigger problem. The story of God and his people involves an even bigger dilemma. And that is in the story of the Bible is about, is about God solving that problem. And the problem is this, how is God going to save his people? How is God going to save his people? That pattern is repeated over and over and over again. How is he going to save his people? Well, this is what we're seeing in this story. All the people had to do was keep walking into the sea and Moses would raise his staff again and God would divide the sea so that the people might walk on through to, through to dry land. God would direct the hearts of the Egyptians to follow them into the sea and in verses 19 to 31, things go according to that plan. The angel of God moved to stand in between Israel and the Egyptian army um, and the Lord did act as a warrior to fight on their behalf, you know, making the, 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 the wheels uh, get, get stuck, clogging the wheels on the chariots, putting fear into the hearts of the army. And then Moses stretched out his hand another time and the sea fell back in place and the Egyptians were all drowned in it. And the chapter ends with verse 31, which records the response of Israel to these events. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. 
That's where our story ends. And I said earlier that the big question of the Bible is, how is God going to save his people? And you'll remember at the start of the talk, I argued that the reason why the Exodus story stirs our hearts is because it points through layers of spiritual truths and it points to an ultimate truth. Because when we think about the story of slaves being freed, this powerful story points to an ultimate spiritual truth about how we are going to be freed or how we've been freed by Jesus, freed from slavery to sin. This, point, this story points to Jesus powerfully. We should see Moses as a type of Jesus. We should see Moses as a shadow of Jesus, the saviour to come. The vast waters of the Red Sea is like our sin. It's like the big obstacle between us and God. It seems like there's no way forward. There's nothing that can be done, it seems. How is this distance going to be crossed over? You might think you are not worthy of God, that there are things that you've done that are so shameful that God would never forgive you, that there's no possible way for you. Perhaps you think that your life is as good as over, that God could never love you. But the Exodus story shows us that if God wants to do something, there's nothing that can stop him. And in terms of your salvation and your forgiveness, God has provided the ultimate pathway, the ultimate road through the sea of our sin, which is Jesus on the cross. Jesus' opening speech in the synagogue was to say that he had come to set the captives free. And he's talking about you and me, people who have been slaves to sin. There are layers of truth in the Bible. It is true because Jesus did come to change the world, to bring justice for the marginalised. Blessed are the poor, says Jesus, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, says Jesus, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus came to set the prostitutes and the outcast people in society free. He came for the orphans and the widows. And over all of that, he came to set our hearts free so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life in the true and greater promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. The land flowing with milk and honey, it says, where there will be no more crying and no more pain. All we have to do is put our trust in Jesus. Just like the Israelites at the Sea of Reeds, you don't have to do anything but put your trust in Jesus. And I want to finish just to remind you with what Moses said. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for the story of salvation in the Bible and we pray that we will know that to be true in our hearts. We know that there's nothing that can stop you from saving us. Thank you for providing Jesus, for providing that way through and we pray that we can trust in you, that we have to stop trying to fight the Egyptian army on our own and that we just let you fight for us. Amen.